Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. At this moment, there are bills on their way to Governor Lee's Bill Lee's desk that would affect the lives of thousands of Tennesseans. They would criminalize drag shows and gender affirming care for minors. The governor says he intends to sign them both. This legislation takes aim at our trans and queer communities, preventing them from living peaceful lives. Later this hour, we'll invite members of our trans and queer communities to the table to share their thoughts and reactions to the bills. But first, it's time for At Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments, so you don't have to. Yes, I am encouraging you to literally add us on Twitter at This Is Nashville and on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with a look back at our past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. And happy belated birthday to us. Yes. So thank you to all of our listeners who sent us very nice birthday messages yesterday. Like Rachel, she sent us a tweet saying, quote, I have spent 20 years in the Nashville area and have spent nearly all of the time feeling like an unseen outsider. This is Nashville has made me feel like I have like I have space and a voice here. And that means everything. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you so much, Rachel. And Stephen also sent us a tweet saying, Happy one year to at This Is Nashville. I remember taking part in an early survey for the program asking what topics were important to me. Really happy to have a show that covers some amazing Nashville news and stories. Thank you to all those who are making this program possible. Well, thank you, Stephen. You know, it's still kind of hard to believe it's been a year and a day now. And, you know, listener contributions make our show possible. So we're always thankful for that. Okay. What else have our listeners been saying? Well, moving back to the newsy side of things. Yes. Quite a few concerned parents and teachers sounded off on the state's third grade retention law. Okay, we talked about this last Thursday. It's just a quick refresher for anyone who missed it. The third grade retention law would hold back students who don't score high enough in the reading portion of state tests. Some parents are really concerned about how this will impact their young students, like Kelly, who tweeted at us saying, quote, my child is affected by this. It doesn't feel fair. She didn't even get to finish kindergarten due to the pandemic and spent all of first grade in front of a screen. Second grade was rife with issues and she's just starting to catch up, end quote. Wendy is a math teacher who shares Kelly's feelings. She tweeted at us saying, quote, research shows that it takes three good years to make up for one bad year. Hmm. Putting this law in place for third graders now, after losing a chunk of kindergarten, having complications from distance learnings and quarantines in the first grade, and having significant COVID impacts on second grade, it's ridiculous, Mm. end quote. We also received a tweet that got to another aspect of all this, because like some students are better at taking tests than others. Matthew said, quote, I teach people how to take tests. I wouldn't trust a single quote-unquote test for third graders to establish whether they should pass or fail, i.e. be kept back for another year. Just as colleges don't use the ACT or only the ACT for admission, neither should a child's future hang on one test. You know, as a in the past, I had a career as a teacher in the 2000s, and I completely understand and agree with all of these, you know, 
when I was a teacher, when they passed No Child Left Behind, we thought that things were going to go downhill. And it's just my opinion, but it seems like they have sense. Okay, so what else do we have, Anna? Well, we have to address the elephant room. And that is mm. our episode on Monday about the plan for the new Titan Stadium. Yes. Our panel for that show included two council members, a representative from the mayor's office, and Titan CEO Burke Nihill. Quite a few of our listeners felt like we didn't represent all sides of the debate. Economic Economist J.C. Bradbury also weighed in. In November, he actually gave a presentation to the Metro Council about how stadium, stadiums don't really add to local economies. But J.C. tweeted at us saying, quote, why did you invite three pro-stadium voices and only one stadium critic, in this case being Bob Mendes? Mm -hmm. That's not a balanced coverage, especially considering that all research shows that stadiums are terrible public investments, end quote. We brought those pro-stadium voices to the show with the goal of holding them accountable. Right. And I do also want to say that we did collect questions from the community and pose them to team and city officials during the show. But... A listener named Kelly felt like we missed the mark on this Citizen Nashville episode. She tweeted, quote, the goal of the show is to answer your questions and round up resources for you and make sure leaders hear your needs. I'm trying to figure out why, where Ben Eagles, Burke Nihill and the Titans fit into those goals. Community advocates alongside council members would be a better fit to ensure the community's needs are being heard. At This Is Nashville, we'd love a follow-up episode to hear a variety of voices, end quote. Well, Kelly and everybody else who sent us their concerns, we hear y'all loud and clear. Mm -hmm. And that's why we are bringing you a follow-up episode next to Thursday, excuse me, so that's March 9th, to focus on the community reaction to the stadium plan. So keep an ear out for that. Make sure you do. And that is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Thanks for this roundup, Anna, and we'll see you soon. Of course, and our listeners know where to find me online. Don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram, and let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It's super easy and quick and helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about what it's like to be trans in Tennessee in the midst of legislation targeting our trans and queer communities and spreading hate. Tweet us your thoughts at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are the unalienable rights that are supposed to apply to all of us. To be able to live freely is what this country is supposed to be about. Throughout our shared history, we've struggled to make those words ring true for all Americans. Yet, some people are ostracized for who they are. And now the Tennessee State Legislature has passed bills that target our queer communities. One would bag drag shows. Another would prohibit gender-affirming care for minors. A third bill, which is moving closer to passing, would limit the legal definition of gender to only what is assigned at birth and bar people from changing their birth certificates. Should these bills become law, they will affect thousands of Tennesseans. So 
how are members of our trans and queer communities responding? For the for more on that, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Ray Holloman is the chair of the Tennessee Transgender Task Force. He was joined by community member Claire Steele and high school student Lennon Freitas. I want to thank you all for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thanks. So let's start the discussion by discussing two of the bills that are on their way to Governor Lee's desk. SB3 would ban drag shows in public spaces, and SB1 would ban gender-affirming medical care for minors. The governor says he intends to sign them both. Ray, how'd you respond when you heard about these bills? It's been very frustrating because it's like there's no medical need for this, and it's really just a continued attack on our community from seeing that pulling the HIV funding to now all the bills that are being passed, it's like we are being attacked for just trying to exist and live our lives in the state of Tennessee. And we should be able to exist just like every other Tennessee and every other Nashvilleian to make our choices and be free to make the choices that let us make us feel the most authentic selves. You know, state lawmakers have been you know, bringing out these laws that are attacking and really coming after the trans and queer communities for a few years now. Tell me, why do you think that is? I think that we have just become a very easy target. A lot of this really started happening after marriage equality was passed back in 2015. And so since then, that became the law of the land. And so the next target really has become the trans community. We've seen over the last, since 2015, the number of anti-LGBTQ bills just can continually ramp up. And Tennessee is one of the leaders in passing a lot of those bills because now we are just a target that they can go after as being their North Star of saying, hey, this is how we're really fixing the community when actually they're just hurting the community. Now, now Lennon, you're a minor who's receiving gender affirming care. Some lawmakers claim that these bills would protect children. Do you feel protected? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not at all. How does it make you feel? Um, it's really frustrating. Um, it's really terrifying at the same time when I'm kind of just enjoying my life and I'm like at school and I'm getting good grades and I'm just doing everything and being the best human I can be and then my mom texts me she's like hey this this is happening hmm. we might we might we're gonna lose our care we're gonna lose our Vanderbilt care we don't we might not know where to get tea we might not be able to access anymore that's pretty terrifying and I think it's I think it's pretty stupid they say they're protecting kids when there's actual like Evidence that um, um, trans minors, like, without getting care, like, suicide rates are very high and mental health declines without getting gender-affirmative care. How are your peers responding to this? A lot of them are really scared. I happen to be a bit more fortunate than a lot of my peers. And a lot of my friends, they they don't have, they weren't able to get this care just because maybe parents or money or things like that. But now they're even more scared that even if they were able to convince their parents, they wouldn't be able to either way. And there, some people are trying to see if they can, you know, get care from like out of state or something. But that's expensive and it, like it's difficult to do things. And it's just like it's really everyone's scared and everyone's just trying to be there for each other. Do you and your peers have a sufficient support system at school? Um, at my school, we have a GSA um, who post a lot on Instagram and stuff, like supportive things. Um, but at school, I 
there are like we have counselors and things like that but when it comes to the community i i wouldn't say it's the most open there's like a lot of children a lot of kids at my school um so like we have like uh theater is like a really open space a lot of the art kids are really open but at the same time just the amount of like safe spaces that we might have and safe teachers there are other teachers or other spaces in the school that might be just as hateful. So you have spaces that you all have had to essentially create for yourselves. Yeah, there. pretty much. Now, Claire, the lawmakers behind the anti-drag bill say that drag shows are harmful to children. What's your response to that? Well, you know, I have a really big problem with that because I think um, I think if you're going to try to make the case that, that drag shows are somehow harmful, especially to children, um, that, that just shows me how... Uh, you know, they. Do, I think the people writing these bills, they don't understand what they're trying to regulate. They don't understand what a drag show is. A drag show is not a sexual um, performance. It's just not. And, um, you know, to um, try to regulate it in a way that, that also insinuates that it's harmful to children, that's a very specific and targeted thing to do, and it's a very insidious thing to do because um, you're you're um, passing this, you know, this moral judgment on something that it, there's just no context for that. Well, tell us, for people who have not gone to a drag show, I have plenty of them over the course of my life. Tell people what it's like. So uh, it, 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 it really is, um, it's a performance. You know, drag performers, drag performers are not strippers. They're not doing sexualized dances. They, 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 um, uh, have a, a very specific choreographed routine that they're doing, you know, to a piece of music. And they spend a very, very long time getting ready for it, putting a lot of clothing on. There's nothing that gets, that gets taken off during these shows. It's not something that, again, there's, there's no danger to children. There's no danger to anyone. Um, and I think, uh, you know, to make another point uh, along those lines, this is not just about that. Like, I also, like, when I go to a drag show, it's not always for the drag. Hmm. Um it, it is a place where one of the very few places in my life where I can go and I'm not necessarily having to look over my shoulder the entire time and I don't feel like I'm in danger when I'm there. So it is also a very targeted attack on one of the very few places that they know that queer people feel safe at in order to remove that. What do you feel like these misconceptions, what do you feel like they're based upon? Um... It feels like wishful thinking to me, or it feels like, or, or, or there's some kind of idea that these people have in their heads that this is somehow dangerous because, uh, I, I don't know, maybe they just don't like queer people having fun, <laughs> but I, I, and, 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 uh, you know, um, it's a very serious thing and it might seem to some people like this is a very small thing, like, oh, they're not banning all drag shows they're just talking about in the context of children but like why does children have anything to do with it for one number two uh, Tennessee already has very robust obscenity laws that cover these situations you already cannot be obscene in public um, and it also criminalizes drag shows on public property which is a very targeted attack on pride parades mm -hmm. and public display it makes being drag uh, in drag in public illegal essentially um, and that's very very dangerous you know, we've all seen how misconceptions and misinformation can run rampant and run through our society rather quickly. Ray, what do you want people to know and understand about your community? I think that I want people to understand is that we are Nashvillians, we are Tennesseans, just like everyone else. 
we uh, this is not this is not something that people choose to do because it is a very difficult and long road to go down. Like we don't transition just at a whim of a hat. A lot of people take a lot of time to think about it, go through you know, talking with friends, uh, family, things like that. I want people to know that like, we're just here to be like everybody else. We pay taxes, we go to school, we're in all of these places. And a lot of these bills are making it very uncomfortable for trans people to feel comfortable in this state Mm. because how some of them are written, like the drag bill in a way that it's written is that, Uh, in combination with some of the other bills that they have could potentially I could be seen as a male impersonator because my birth certificate will still say female, but then my driver's license or other ideals say male. So if I if somebody doesn't like that, then I could potentially get a felony at this point Mm -hmm. because they'll see me as a male impersonator. And it's like I'm not impersonating anybody. I am being myself. Just like Claire said, drag is a performance. And so, like, are we going to start looking at other performers that may potentially cross-dress in part of their performance? Are they going to still be welcome to come into this state? Or is it that we're just really targeting the trans community and trying to remove them from visibility, but anybody else who is cisgender and heterosexual identified, they're okay to cross-dress, but not people that are transgender in the state. And so it's really starting to play with definitions and lines that I don't think that we are all really prepared for because really we're just trying to exist in mm-hmm. in this space and just like everyone else. I'm wondering how far these some of these bills will actually go if it comes to this performance and drag. I mean, how, how is Tennessee going to get another Tyler Perry movie if you think about <laughs> it, you know? But, you know, you said something and... You know, I understand you started transitioning when you were 26. How did that step change your life? It brought so much, all the, I will say through my high school years and, you know, college, I was just very depressed because I didn't learn what being transgender was till I was like 22. Mm-hmm. And so that was like 22 to 26 was like this four year period where I was really still struggling of like, am I okay being a very masculine lesbian or do I need to take that step and transition? And when I decided to transition, it was like my entire life opened up. I was just so much happier, didn't have it's nearly the amount of depression and anxiety that I had before because I realized that I had been playing into this role my entire life that did not fit. And now I was actually able to be myself. And so that just brought so much positivity to my life. And that's what I see in trans youth when they are able to be their most authentic selves. You just see like this light in their eyes that taking away these gender affirming services will take away. Now, Lennon, you're a trans youth. How does how does what Ray said she resonate with you? I mean, it's all true. I mean, speaking facts, I don't really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just starting to transition helps so much with depression and anxiety and dysphoria. And I feel like without it, without the ability to transition, it's just super hard. And then also a lot of people, um, they think that like transitioning, it's like 
like the same thing as deciding, oh, I think I want to cut my hair. Like, mm-hmm. it takes a long time. I found out that I was trans when I was about 11 and got on T when I was 16. Um, it took a long time, and I've been to multiple therapists, and then you have to go to therapists and then doctors, and then you have to go to certain different types of doctors, and only certain hospitals allow the type of care, and then you have to be approved, and then if you change therapists, you have that therapist to approve. It just takes a really long time, and you have to, you know, you can, at any of this time, you could back out and be like, oh, actually, no, no, never mind. But if you keep, and you keep in there, and, like, you keep feeling the same way, like, it's not just, like, a super quick decision. It's something that you really mm-hmm. know. You, you mentioned this a little bit earlier that, you know, you said your mom texted you when these bills <laughs> were proposed. And you also mentioned that you got some peers in school who necessarily can't come to their families yeah. with this. How important is it to you to have such a supportive family as you're on this journey? Well, I was raised in California. And so I've been raised kind of in the San Francisco area. And my family has always been, my immediate family has always been very supportive. And ever since I was young, I was going to like pride festivals. And I was young, I very remember getting like stories read at like these drag shows, like in like Chicago and like really beautiful stuff like that. And having a supportive family has made it very easy for me to express myself in in my own identity and with whatever pronouns I need and dress however I want and get the gender affirming care I need. Um, even though some of my other family in Nashville, more extended family might, might be the opposite, but I, my, like my mom, my dad, stepdad, sisters, they all, they all support me. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Kalia Lake We're talking this hour with members of our trans and queer communities. Join the conversation by tweeting us at this is Nashville. Now, Claire, I understand that you recently came out as trans, but you felt this way for a long time, right? Yeah. And um, so it did take me a really long time to figure out how to express that. This is something that I just knew about myself from a very young age, but because um, as a society, we don't really have the vocabulary to talk about. It's not something that we really discuss. Um, you know, uh, I didn't have the vocabulary for it to be able to understand how to express it. Um, and I still don't most of the time. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't know who I am. I'm actually very, very sure of that. I know who I am. Um, it just means that um, my expression of it, I'm still trying to figure that out. And I think that that is something, if you think about it, in most contexts, we allow everyone to do for themselves. Mm. And if you're talking about anything else, if you're talking about the way you dress or what music you listen to or what now, now those are obviously choices that you make for yourself. But if someone, you know, um, uh, is, is just trying to express who they are, I don't understand why that is a problem that needs to be solved. How did the ability to share your experience with others. How's that helped you? Well, it's kept me alive, very, mm-hmm. very simply. Like, uh, I mean, I, I, I say this um, to people, uh, I think it sums it up uh, pretty clearly, is um, <laughs> when I uh, figured out that, uh, I had a very clear moment where I figured out that, that for example, wearing a skirt meant that I didn't want to throw myself off a bridge. Hmm. And that's very 
uh, difficult to explain to someone who's not been through this, but um, if everything in your life is telling you that you're not something that you know that you are, or is telling you that you can't be that thing, you're not allowed to be that thing, or it's not possible for you to be that thing, it's very dehumanizing. And uh, it's very hard to fight back against, even though you, you, everyone knows who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said something about, you know, explaining to people who haven't been through this journey that a lot of folks are claiming allyship, but sometimes that's just only surface level support. What do you want them to understand about what you and others are really going through? Well, I want to believe that everyone's an ally who says that they're an ally. Um, But I think in Tennessee, we have a very specific problem, which is um, I I think if we had as many allies as as they're claimed to be, uh, why am I here on this panel talking about these laws that are being written and enacted and set in motion against us? Um, It's sort of one thing to claim that, and it's another thing to do something about it. And that something doesn't have to be a big thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, it can be a small thing. It can be something, just go down to the Capitol and go to a hearing and just see what it's like and show up. If enough people showed up together and made it known that this was not acceptable, um, things would change pretty quick. Ray, your thoughts on allyship and what they can do to support I think that allies right now need to reach out to the trans community and ask for what we need. Because a lot of that is showing up to the Capitol, helping us increase our numbers because we are a small part of the population. So we need our allies to come out, to talk to their friends, talk to their families, talk about all the misinformation that is out there to help turn the ship back to actual factual information, that this is supported by doctors, by all the different medical associations, because that will really help to change the tide and let our representation in the legislature know that this is not okay. We need we need these bills not to be passed because it is not helping Tennesseans at all. It's only hurting us because we can't do it alone. So we definitely need our allies to come out and be willing to sometimes maybe even, you know, be out in our rallies, helping us increase our numbers, because that's the only way that we're going to continue to see this change is that they aren't going to listen to me. They're more likely to listen to someone that looks like them. So a lot of our legislators don't look like me. And so they're not going to listen to me at all, but they're willing to listen to someone that looks like them. So our allies have to step in and be that connection point and say, hey, this is not OK. And this is not what Tennessee values stand for. How is important? How important is it to you to have advocacy and support from the medicine and science world? Oh, it's super important to have that because that's where all of the backing come from. They have all of the research that understands that all of the gender affirming services that they're talking about banning are actually life saving. Like we transgender people have such a high rate of suicide because they aren't able to come out or we see these bills, we see that we're being persecuted, we're constantly having to look over our backs. And so having that backing from the community just is another validation point that says, hey, this is actually a lot safer and more effective for us to treat these people than actually trying to ban these services or people trying to self-serve themselves and get access to hormones. And so we can get them into treatment, then they can be uh, 
they can help the community more or less versus trying to be like, no, we've got to ban all of these services because that's not going to help overall. Mm-hmm. Now, Lennon, you mentioned all the steps that you had to go through seeing di- different doctors, different therapists. How would you describe your relationship with your medical provider? Um, <laughs> I'm very grateful for all my doctors. I'm very grateful for everyone, but it is very difficult. There, a while was a shortage of needles. I could not get the right size needle for my injections or my T injections mm. or getting access to the T in general was hard. And I remember starting the process for T took maybe about a year. Like even after I had my note like my from my therapist that I was like ready to get on it, took about maybe a year to actually access the testosterone. And it's really difficult. Um, just like there's what were some of the setbacks uh, like the needles were setbacks and gosh getting the uh, lack of responsiveness it didn't respond a lot of times because you know there's only so much a small area can do and like they don't have that much funding like if this is like a different cause there might be more funding more responsiveness and things but you know I believe personally that you know in the medical community even though there is so much like just in, in general, you know, there's so much like proof and evidence how gender affirming care can be so important to trans people and people in the LGBTQ community. Um, it's not seen as as important as other mental illnesses mm. necessarily. No, that's not that's not trans is mental illness, of course. That's, yeah. No, no, I'm saying I'm saying like like the safety of a trans person not being able to like express themselves is just as bad as other things that we take a bit more seriously. Well, well, tell us, what are your hopes for the future with that in mind? I really hope that I'm able to, I don't access tea easier and not be scared every single time I take my tea shot. Like, what if this is the last one I'm gonna get? Mm. Like, what if it's gonna be another five months until I get one? What if they're running out of needles? What if I can't get them? What if it becomes illegal? Like, I wanna be like, be able to like, transition and I find myself once I got on T find myself not changing fast enough and I find that's like a clock ticking because I don't know maybe tomorrow I won't be able to take T anymore and this is all I got this is how much I can transition like maybe I have to stop by now and so like just always like needing more and I just want to know like not be scared <laughs> yeah you know some families are considering leaving the state because of these laws has has yours? Yes. Um, yeah, we are. We have a big family, uh, but we are definitely considering moving or getting places from, like, trying to find alternative ways to get it. You know, my, my parents go through hell and back to try to get me the care I need, and if needed, yeah, we, we can move, we can leave. Mm-hmm. Claire, have you considered leaving the state? I haven't. I haven't, and I'll tell you why. I love Tennessee. I really do. That's, I'm genuine. I really do love it here. And I want to say that it 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 needs to be okay for me to say that. Like, you, It's not just one type of person that can say, I love Tennessee. I love the United States. I love my country. I love my state. Um, and I, wanna, I want it to be better, because I know it can be better. 
it's really disappointing to me that we that we have to sit here and talk about this and we have to debate whether or not certain groups of people should have the same rights and freedoms as everyone else um and it's really it's really dehumanizing and demoralizing so um yeah that is community member claire Steele. she was joined by high school student lennon freitas I want to thank you both for joining us. Thank you for being here. Ray Holloman with the Tennessee Transgender Task Force will stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll talk about what the experiences of trans and gender nonconforming people can tell us about gender. Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. The Tennessee state legislature has passed bills that would criminalize drag shows and gender-affirming care for minors. As of now, the bills are on their way to Governor Lee's desk, and he's vowed to sign them. Before the break, we heard from members of the trans community about their reaction to these proposed laws. Now let's talk about gender expression more broadly. What can these experiences of trans and gender nonconforming people tell the rest of us, including cis men and women? What can we all learn? To help answer that, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Maxine Spencer is a community organizer, and Hella Skeleton is an actor and activist. Maxine, Hella, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for having me Thank on. Thank you. Really a pleasure to have you both on. Now, you know, nationally, there's been more conversations about gender and transitioning, and a lot of people think that these are new concepts, but that's not really true. Maxine, what would you say to those folks? So I would say um, trans people have always existed. So if you really look back into history, uh, there's understandings of gender variance, and that gender isn't very this very strict kind of binary sort of thing um, throughout all of human civilization across every continent. Um, you can look to um, two-spirit folks and really that term is kind of an umbrella term that where there's more specific cultural understandings of what it might mean to have a under, different understanding of gender as opposed to just being man or woman. To Hedras in India, um, I can even think about, I can even go back to, um, uh, if you... So the Igbo don't really have gender in their own language. You know? You're talking about the Igbo tribe in Africa. Yeah, yeah, the Igbo tribe. They don't really have gender in the language. Hmm. You know, people, the concepts, when you translate it out into English, that came from colonization. You know, all these things about that we, everyone is experiencing around how strict and how repressive the gender binary is, is coming from um, past colonialism and from white supremacist oppression, basically. Do you have some other references of varied expression and gender Globally? Yes. So if I remember correctly, there was an understanding that some folks, um, even in Zululand, basically had that uh, where a person might be born assigned male to birth, but then also have a different energy, more so of like what's what they were stereotyped as a woman. And so that person would also get, be given different roles um, in the community. There's also uh, another expression in Mexico called the mooses, if I said that right. I might not have said that right. Mm -hmm. um, but there are different ways of being that have crossed the globe and then again are in different parts of 
of human civilization. It's not that being trans is this new thing. We have always existed. It's that now we're we're being talked about more openly and there's more specific language that people are using. Like even for my own self, I consider myself um I consider my own my expression of my gender. I, I in English I will say it's a trans I'm a trans woman. Um but I recognize that who I am uh is and what my gender is is ancestrally based and a concept that is beyond what I can express using this language. To me, being able to talk about being trans as a whole, as an umbrella, as a kind of umbrella term, that is working through a language and through a concept that wasn't entirely designed for me, mm. that doesn't entirely express who I am. Um, and what I always leave room for is that it's a unifying term for other folks that we can use in the here and now as we kind of go against the, the suppression. But for me, I don't necessarily always feel this kind of body-mind dichotomy. I have an understanding of who I am internally, and I live by that. Mm -hmm. Now, Hella, you are gender fluid, but that doesn't mean genderless. Can you explain gender fluidity for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I started using the term gender fluid over 10 years ago. Um, now I sometimes use the word non-binary to describe myself because that is a term that has sort of gained mainstream traction. Um, but I actually don't per se resonate with that term because I don't really like to identify against what I'm not. Mm. Um, I experience myself as gender fluid because I feel that I am both male and female. I feel that I feel strongly masculine. Sometimes other days I feel more feminine. Other days I don't really feel either. Um, so sometimes I use the word genderful to describe myself as well. What are some of the most common misconceptions that the public has about genderful people? I think, like you said, um, this conception that it is this modern day trend, um, as though, you know, for example, Representative Lambert in committee describing us as a social contagion. Um, people are thinking that it's some kind of disease that you can catch just by being exposed to it, when what's actually happening is that people are seeing for the first time, reflections of themselves in media, walking around, and they're resonating with that, young people. And so they see us, they're not catching a disease from us. They're seeing something that resonates with them and makes them want to be more authentic to themselves. Now, Governor Bill Lee says he intends to sign the drag bill into law, but an old high school yearbook photo recently surfaced of Lee wearing himself, wearing a dress. When asked about it, Lee told reporters that what he did was different from the drag that would be banned under this new law. Let's take a listen. What a ridiculous, ridiculous question that is. Conflating something like that to sexualized entertainment in yeah. front of children, which is a very is serious subject. Drag is not sexual. Hello, what's your reaction to that? I mean, this just shows exactly how dangerous this bill is. It's completely subjective. It essentially gives the green light to your mean-spirited neighbor, to a police officer, to a prosecutor, to decide on a completely arbitrary basis when something crosses the line into being sexual or into being inappropriate for children. For Bill Lee to say, you know, that was lighthearted when I did that is absolutely absurd when a lot of drag is extremely lighthearted. Um, so yeah, it, it just shows that there's not going to be, there's nothing in the bill that really defines when that line is crossed. Um, for example, I know that TPAC is gonna be able to do, Mrs. Doubtfire is gonna be able to do 
hairspray. Um, apparently, when straight men dress up badly in drag, that's okay. But when gay and queer and trans people do it, that's not okay. Um, and again, there's nothing in the language of the bill that clarifies any of that. So it's really giving it over to the subjective opinions of people who are extremely bigoted and biased. Um, when you asked earlier, how are people getting this misconception about what drag is? I wanted to add that it's actually a very targeted propaganda campaign where what is happening is right-wing creeps are coming to drag shows and following other people's kids around to try to catch something untoward happening. And then they'll post a video that says, you know, drag queen spreads her legs to the children. And you watch the video and it's like, it's a high kick. It's a cartwheel. You know what I mean? So there's this propaganda that when we do it, it's dangerous for kids. But when Bill Lee does it, it's harmless. Now, Maxine, how would you say this double standard that Hell is talking about is harmful to all of us in our society here? I think when in talking to this double standard that really... Um, going back to what I was saying about this very rigidity, this very strong rigidity with the gender binary itself, your understanding for, for people that are cisgender, your understanding of trans folks really also reflects more so back on you. Because for a lot of us in the community, we have asked ourselves, what is truly our relationship to our gender? How we identify ourselves? Like what, what really is making us you've ourselves. done you've done the deep introspective work and you've asked yourself these questions that some people may be running from right and a lot of times a lot a lot of times cisgender people are in a sense running it deeper into those different social roles where we encouch enc enc the gender binary um, for example I can think about you know the ways a lot of times men feel like they have to over masculinize themselves because they feel like they're not man enough Mm. Or over the times that, you know, where women are feeling the same, cisgender women are feeling the same thing. They have to hyper feminize themselves. They have to over, people have to overdo what is expected of them because this understanding of, of the gender binary is a form of social control and it's a form of power. That's basically where pe people are getting caught up in trying to not be at the harmful end of that power structure. And that's and that's where a lot of this double standard is kind of coming from, in that people are also trying to understand their own place in this entire scheme. Um, but then also they're trying to conform so that they can either point at us and try to display that kind of power and to kind of denigrate us or to try to make themselves feel better. Um, and again, cis people don't understand themselves without um, having some kind of understanding of trans people, because at the end of the day, people have to ask themselves, why? Who am I? Am I really this? Am I really X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. And a lot of trans people, we have already done that. Mm -hmm. But cis people don't do that. If, you, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake We're talking this hour with Maxine Spencer, Ray Holloman, and Hella Skeleton about what the experience of trans and gender nonconforming people tells us about gender. Now, Ray Holloman is with the Tennessee Transgender Task Force, still with us. Thank you very much for being here. You know, Nashville is a place where trans and queer people can find support. What does that look like here in our city? I think there's a lot of different groups that are trying to come together. There's groups for youth, there's groups for adults, there's support groups. Um, but a lot of it's really kind of in some ways fractured um, in the community because we don't have a general space where everybody can come together. Nashville being as large as it is, we do not have an actual LGBTQ center, community center. So there's not just like one place where everybody can come in. So you 
information gets dispersed in various different ways. Organizations are trying to bring that together. But I think that a lot of times when people transition and they start showing up in events or finding connecting with others, we just start bringing them along to other events and kind of make these kind of formed communities. Mm -hmm. And that's how we start getting to know each other. So when an action happens against maybe one part of the community, we're letting other people in the community know and we're trying to rally together because we are all kind of interconnected with each other. Many of us float around many of the different groups that exist in Nashville. So a lot of times we're talking to each other. We're trying to coordinate resources, coordinate aid to each other because, I mean, trans people a lot of times are underemployed. And so how can we make sure that we're taking care of our own needs? So we start Mm -hmm. working in community with each other uh, because we know that we've got to help ourselves because there may be others that are out there to help us, but we know that we've got to try to take care of our own first. Now, Hella, you're from rural middle Tennessee. How does what Ray is sharing, how does that resonate with you? Do you have How are you all finding support and building support for each other? Well, luckily, you know, we're we're out here and we're already sort of organized as a community and we really stick together and and we try to watch each other's backs as much as we can. So um, I feel very supported by my immediate community where I am. Um, fortunately. Um, but, you know, we are having a lot of the hard conversations like you were having with your guests earlier of like, are some of us going to have to leave? Like at what line will be crossed where it will become unlivable or too dangerous to be here? And it's really difficult to have to have those conversations. Um, and I think that soon we will be getting together more officially to figure out exactly how we want to respond in the new reality that we're going to be living in when all of these bills pass. Maxine, have you given consideration to leaving because of these laws? No. And I say that because I've been I've been born in the state. I'm uh, there's been several generations of Spencers that have lived in the state and I refuse to just give up my home like that. Um, I refuse to be forced out of a place that my family has called home again for generations. And so there's nothing I think that can really stop me from claiming that and from me really standing to standing uh, 10 toes down in that. And really, um, all of this is just, as I understand, as I see it, it is part of a political ploy so that people can further consolidate power. And so people are there because this whole us being an issue, being a main talking point. But what is really changing for folks material conditions, Mm. you know? So they're making laws around gender affirming care for minors. There's been no, there's never been an issue. I've never heard of a drag queen harming, really harming any child, almost harming, harming anyone really. But what's actually happening in our communities? People, DCS is a mess. People aren't able to get health care. People, the housing crisis across this state, not just in the city, and yet. People are pointing to us as if we're the boogeyman in the closet. And I refuse to be pushed out of my home because someone wants to try to paint me as a boogeyman when really I'm just a person trying to live my life. And really, I think what people, what everyone everyone needs to be looking at is what is actually happening for people's material conditions. How are people's lives being changed and being affected by what people are putting out? And I think that goes for no matter what side of the aisle you're on. I think that basically goes for if you 
if you're talking about trans people in the affirmative or in the negative. Mm. I think what people really need to be getting down to is how is this affecting my daily life and how is this affecting my material conditions? Well, hello. What conversations are we not having that would allow us to come to a greater understanding of each other as Maxine is referring to? Well, I think that that's where your question about allies come in, because what I'm seeing when I go to these hate rallies and when I go to the legislature is that there are people who are so deep in their hate that we are giving unbelievably heartfelt testimony about the harm that this will cause. And our Republican legislators are just I, 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 and they're not hearing it. So I think it's rather than moving people who are already hateful closer to understanding, what I'm more interested in is moving people who are sort of being passive allies into being active allies. And that's where my interest lies. And I think for that, what we need is to see people who are willing to actually risk something, people who are willing to actually sacrifice something or stand up and say something when they're fearful that they may be punished for that. I think we need to see more investment in the mutual aid networks that, um, as, as Maxine was saying, that are going to support the actual material conditions that people are dealing with. You know, I know there's a huge fundraiser right now to get this picture of Bill Lee put on a billboard. And while I love the attention that that's getting, that billboard isn't going to help a drag queen that gets arrested. That billboard isn't going to help a, a trans kid that needs access to healthcare. I would love to see that money actually go back into the queer and trans community. So we need that kind of real material support and allyship, that real sticking your neck out and saying something even when it puts you at risk. Ray, I've got about 20 seconds. Where can people go to find support? They can go to Inclusion Tennessee. They're doing a great job of promoting a lot of what happens um, in Nashville and across the state. That is Ray Holloman with the Tennessee Transgender Task Force. He was joined by drag performer Hella Skeleton and community organizer Maxine Spencer. Thank you all for being with us today. Thank you for this conversation. Really, truly appreciate it. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we'll explore Nashville's food truck scene. They give a whole new meaning to Meals on Wheels. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Magnolia McKay, and Mariana Bacayao. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to doctors Harry Barbie, Peter Robero, and Tara McKay. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.